And open your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts this morning as we continue in our series that we've entitled Unstoppable. And we have been studying for the last weeks the second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. Paul had spent his first missionary journey um, in the area of uh, um, Asia Minor, which was modern-day Turkey. But now he moves himself uh, to the ministry uh, to the Macedonians, which is modern-day Greece. He gets this calling from God himself that allows a vision to take place where uh, he sees a man of Macedonia asking for Paul and his associates to come and, and be with him. And this morning we come to what is a transitional time, the ending of his second missionary journey and the moving into the third missionary journey that Paul would do. And we're going to learn some important truths about who we are. It was once said by Albert Einstein that once you stop learning, you start dying. Now, Albert Einstein's a pretty smart dude, right? He's a pretty smart cookie, and uh, he's truthful and right in the statement that once we stop learning, we start dying. And that is true for students, but it's altogether more truthful and more apropos, if you will, for us as followers of Jesus Christ, because we have the great opportunity to relate with and know the God of the universe. And because we get to know him, because we get to relate to him, he has revealed himself, not only through creation, but his word, and most importantly, through his son, Jesus Christ, that we get each and every day the great blessing and opportunity to know more and more about our Lord and Savior, about the God who has loved us and saved us despite of our, in spite of our sin and our failings and flaws. And God has done so, and he's created in us an opportunity to know him and to get to know him deeper and deeper each and every day. And we should long for that. Now, theologians call this process the process of sanctification, being more like Jesus each and every day. And the second we stop becoming more and more like Jesus, we start to die. We die to ourselves. We die to our sin. We die to all temptations and all manner of obstacles and distractions that come our way. And so Einstein, who wasn't a believer, recognizes that if we stop learning, we start dying. And as Christians, we need to recognize that that process of sanctification is a lifelong process. We will do and be a part of that process until we see Jesus Christ face to face. And we need to recognize this morning that sometimes we think we've graduated from learning. Some of us think that we don't have to get into the classroom anymore. But God is going to show us through some examples this morning that mature followers of Jesus Christ are ones who are in a perpetual journey towards knowledge and wisdom and understanding with regards to who Jesus is and the place that he plays within our lives. I found an article uh, that recorded some lifelong learning that was done by both young and, and old people alike, and they shared what they've learned in their lifetime. Some are profound and some are quite humorous. A 12-year-old said, I've learned that just when I get my room the way I like it, mom comes in and makes me clean it up. That's pretty good. One mother said that what she has come to learn is that grandchildren and grandparents are natural allies. I'm learning that with my own children. Another woman said, I've learned that you can tell a lot about a man by the way he handles three things. A rainy day, lost luggage, um, and a tangled uh, Christmas tree light ball. Okay? 
Uh, a seasoned traveler gave this interesting piece of advice. He said, I've learned that the hotel mattresses are usually more comfortable on the side where there's no phone or clock. That's interesting. Another traveler said that he learned that wherever he goes, the world's worst drivers always seem to follow him. Uh, one that I really like is a, a favorite uh, is a boy who stated, I've learned that you can't hide a piece of broccoli in a glass of milk. That's an important one. 58-year-old man made a profound statement. He said, I've learned that making a living is a lot is not the same as making a life. And Peter Lynch, uh, the former Fidelity Magellan fund manager, uttered the same sentiment when he said, no one on their deathbed has ever said, I wish I spent more time at the office. These things are truisms. They are things that we learn uh, many times through the school of, of hard knocks. And we've been in this series where we have been looking at uh, the lifelong learning of the disciples of Jesus Christ. They didn't have it all figured out. They didn't have all the answers, but they were learning to be filled with the Spirit. They were learning to live in love with one another. They were learning to endure difficult times with Christ as their goal and as their pursuit in life. And in doing so, God's grace and His Spirit was empowering them and impacting them through the ministry that they were a part of. And our text concludes the second missionary journey this morning. In fact, if you uh, write anything in your, take notes in your Bible, you may want to put at the end of verse 22, because I know there was questions in our small groups, when does the journey actually end? The journey, the second missionary journey of Paul ends at the end of verse 22. And that will help you to understand what Luke is articulating, because it's like he went on this journey and he never ends, and then he starts the third journey and we don't know when that takes place. So it's at verse 22. And where we're going to be introduced with is a person we've known for a while, Paul, Someone who's brand new, Apollos, and then a couple that we just got to know, Aquila and Priscilla. And we're going to learn from these three lifelong learners what we need to be doing uh, with regards to our relationship and how, as we pursue Christ and and rest in His promises for us, that we then in turn can uh, can learn what it means to be constantly hungry to know God and to know Him more intimately and deeply along the way. Now, being a lifelong learner is going to help you with some things. Even before we get to our outline, there's a couple things that I want you to recognize that when you recognize that you're a person and that I'm a person in process, that we're learning and growing until we die, it's going to do some things. Number one, it's going to curb It's going to curb the level of pride or arrogance that we have. If you know that you're not a complete work yet, you're not going to assume that you're smarter and brighter and more knowledgeable than anyone else. Pride will be curbed as a result of this. Number two, it will make you teachable. If you recognize that you have areas to grow, if you know that you have areas that you have not achieved perfection, then you're going to be more teachable whether God or another individual teaches you a better way to do things. Third, it's going to take the pressure off of being perfect. This idea of performing, always being right, always being on, you're going to recognize that it's okay at times we're going to fail. It's okay at times that we're not going to fulfill God's purposes perfectly, and that's okay. We're in process, and God is going to give us the grace and the mercy in our time of need uh, to address those things. And finally, 
This is why we worship God. Because when we recognize we're in process, when we recognize we are still growing, we approach a God who's not in process. We approach a God who is complete, who has never faltered and never failed. And we worship Him and we pour ourselves out to Him and we lay ourselves down before Him because He is the God who is perfect. He is the God who is complete. He is the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? Amen. And so as we look at this uh, process that we're going through, this process of sanctification, we learn that there are three things that we need to understand and recognize this morning. The first thing that we're going to see is we're going to need to acknowledge God's grace. We need to acknowledge God's grace. Notice the text. It tells us that uh, after this, that is his time in Corinth, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Censoray, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And then he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up, greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. Now notice the the slide for a moment that has our map that we've been following the travels of, of Paul. We've got Paul in Corinth on the left-hand side of your, your map there. And uh, he goes to Censorea uh, and then travels to Ephesus. That's where he and uh, uh, Aquila and Priscilla find themselves. But then he departs from Aquila and Priscilla and heads down to Caesarea. He makes a journey down to Jerusalem where he fulfills his vow. And then he makes his way back up to Antioch where he starts the journey in the first place. And what we have here is, like I said, a transitional passage of Scripture. And in this transitional passage of Scripture, we see lifelong learning take place. And the first thing we learn from Paul is that we have to acknowledge God's grace. We've got to acknowledge God's grace. Paul recognized something that we all need to recognize. That we uh, need to Paul, see God got Paul in, Corinth in each on the left hand and side every day. Of your, your map it there. is there and, and there alone uh, that we will truly to grow in the knowledge and, and wisdom that only God Ephesus can bring. That's where we he need to recognize and, uh, that only a fool, and Priscilla only a fool find themselves, but then he lives each and every day Aquila and Priscilla breathing air to Caesarea. He makes a journey down to Jerusalem where he fulfills his vow and then he makes his way back up to Antioch where he started the journey and only a fool uses place. skills and abilities that are gifts that are given by their creator. Only a fool does those or has those three things and does not acknowledge that God gave them those things. So how much more foolish is it that a Christian who uh, says with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and acknowledges that there is a God in heaven who is Father of all, who created and sustained all things, how is it acceptable for us as believers in Christ to live our lives without acknowledging each and every day that God is the one who gives us life and breath and the ability to make wealth and the ability to live life and enjoy the good things of life and even to endure trials of many kinds. Brothers and sisters, each and every day should be an acknowledgement by you and I that God, thank you for this new 
today. Thank you for giving me the opportunity not only to reveal, uh, to be in relationship with you, but to be in relationship with your creation. And so I am going to live and I'm going to make decisions with you in mind always. So rewind for a moment this week. When did you invite God into your comings and goings? When did you invite God into your decisions? When did you invite God into your family affairs? When did you invite God into how you spent your money, how you used your time? Far too many of us as Christians find ourselves saying with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, but not inviting him into our lives and acknowledging his presence each and every day. Paul does this in the passage. Notice three places that he does it. Number one, he does it with regards to his own protection. His own protection. The text tells us that he gets a haircut. Kind of weird, right? Paul gets a haircut. Now, we've not heard of any of other Paul's other haircuts. And we're going to assume that Paul had haircuts many a times during his missionary journeys. And Luke doesn't talk about any of them. But he talks about this one. And what it is, is that he has taken a vow. This haircut is connected to a vow that he's taken. And what it seems is, is that Paul has taken on the Nazarite vow. Um, if you know the story of Samson, Samson was a Nazarite. He did not cut his hair. His power was in his hair for Samson specifically. And he had taken a vow not to touch anything dead, not to associate with things that are unclean, um, not to drink from the fruit of the vine, wine, um, or any other intoxicating drink. He was a Nazarite. Uh, we know that John the Baptist was a Nazarite. And John the Baptist, who was a preacher of repentance and the forerunner of Jesus Christ, was one who had taken this vow as well. Now scholars struggle because they're sitting there going, why would a new covenant, grace-oriented apostle like Paul move himself back into the old ways of Judaism, it seems like Paul's being somewhat of a hypocrite. I don't think that that's the reason why Paul's doing it. I don't think he's got entanglements to Judaism that he's trying to figure out. I side with what the scholars, many scholars say is, is this was a commitment that Paul had made in light of God doing something for him. So rewind for a moment in our chapter to verse 8 and 9 of our text in chapter 18. Now we know when he gets to Corinth, he's trembling, he's weak, he's hurting. We talked about that last week. And I believe, as many scholars do, that what is happening is, is Paul has made a deal with God. And we've done that, right? We find ourselves in a bind in our humanness. We say, God, you get me out of this. And I promise to do X, Y, and Z. There are some students over here today who have a test tomorrow and are making deals with God. I'm not even going to look at them because I don't want to offend them. They've made deals with God. God, if you allow me to pass this test, then I will do X, Y, and Z. There are salesmen in this part of the room that say, Lord, if you make the deal happen, I promise I will do X, Y, and Z. Now, is that altogether bad? I don't know. There's some foolishness in, in regards to it because usually what it means is a student didn't prepare for the test, okay? Or salesman wasn't a prepared as he could have been but I would say this it's fine if you what you commit to you accomplish okay I think God is okay with you saying all right you're gonna do this well gonna kind of hold you to it you committed to that and that's what Paul does I think Paul goes into the city of Corinth and I'm speculating a bit so give me a little leeway here but I think Paul comes into Corinth and he's beat up and he's broken and he's saying Lord I'll preach the gospel I'll proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ I'll do so but I'm tired of getting beat up 
I'm tired of being in prison. And who can blame him? Every city he would go into, he would preach, they would get mad, they would bring him before people, they would beat him, and then they would throw him to prison, and later they would throw him out of the city. And Paul is weak, and he's broken, and he comes into Corinth, and I think he goes to God, and he says, God, I'll preach, I'll open my mouth, if you will protect me. And notice how God responds. It says that the Lord said to Paul one night in verse 9, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And it says, listen, and Paul stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. There is, it's not hard to reach this far in the text, there is the sense that God is answering Paul, and Paul is responding by staying committed for 18 months of preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. So here is what the vow is all about. Here's what the haircut is all about. Paul says, I will take on this Nazarite vow, this full and total dedication to the Lord. Lord, because you're protecting me, I will honor you. And in many ways, go above and beyond to show my allegiance to you. I'm going to stay committed. And so for 18 months, he didn't get a shave. He didn't get a haircut. He didn't touch anything unclean. And he didn't do so to make him right with God. That was Old Testament Judaism. But it was to show the world his total uh, submission to the Lord for the growth of his Christ-likeness. There's a difference. There's a difference between doing works that promote sanctification in your life compared to doing works that get you justification. One is a works-based salvation. The other one is a sanctifying process where God is using you and you say, well, what's the verse that would help me with that? Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. For by grace you are saved through faith. It is not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works that any man could boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ to do, help me out, good works that God has prepared for us in advance to do. Paul is saying, I've got this opportunity and I'm going to submit myself and commit myself to the works of God And I'm going to do so by fulfilling this Nazarite vow. And so he gets a haircut. And this haircut is a process where the vow is coming to an end, but he has to get to Jerusalem to fulfill the fullness of his vow. What he's saying, all all that being done, what he is saying is, Lord, thank you for my protection. Thank you for my protection. And I want to ask you this morning, when was the last time you thanked the Lord for your protection? Protection over harm that could befall you. How about your health? Have you, you recognize how fragile we are as human beings that our health is held in the hands of God? And that, Lord, thank you for protecting uh, me or my family. We could be sick now. We could be ailing. But you've protected us. You've watched over us as a parent now who has parents that are advancing in years. I need to be praying for their medical protection. Lord, thank you for protecting my parents. We need to thank the Lord for protecting all elements of our life. And very rarely do we find ourselves doing that. Paul stops and says, I'm going to commit myself for 18 months, never forgetting that if it wasn't for God, I would be a beaten, abused man here in this city. He wants to remind himself of that. And it's a truth we need to recognize as well. Number two, he acknowledges God's grace in his plans in his plans. Notice it says in verse 19, they come to Ephesus, a place where we're going to talk about in the coming weeks, and what we see is he has some initial success in uh, the place of Ephesus where people say, we want you to stay longer. 
And that doesn't happen very often. It doesn't happen very often where, uh, where he is welcome to hang out a little longer. But that's exactly what happens in the synagogue. And here is the reason for his journey, to preach and proclaim. And what does he say? What does he say? I can't stay. And one reason why is because he's going to go to Jerusalem and fulfill his vow. Which in there, for just a moment on a tangent, is a reminder that when we commit to doing something, we need to fulfill it. Fifteen years ago, when I started in ministry, it was easy. It was easy. Ministry was a lot easier, and here's one of the reasons why. Because when someone said they were going to be in the nursery, when someone said they were going to be where they needed to be for the ushering or, or for the small group or, or for any ministry, when people said that they were going to do something, they did it. But somewhere in the church in these last 15 years, commitment has been thrown out the door. And that's not a good thing. Because what happens is, is now we get all the time. In fact, one of the things we do as a staff is we, we find ourselves at times trying to herd cats. Y'all are running all over the place. And I get we're busy and I get that we've got other things that are going on. But let us remember that when we commit, it's a lesson I'm teaching my boys right now. When you say you're going to do something, no matter, and this is really important, no matter when something better comes up, you do what you've said you're going to do. You are only as good as your word. And you need to stay committed. Paul says, listen, I want to stay. There's everything a part of him that wanted to stay. But he said, I committed something to the Lord, and I'm going to see it through. Now notice what he says. He says, listen, I I may return. He says they want him to come back, and they want him to stay longer. But he says, I will return to you. And then he adds a caveat. If God wills. Those three words will revolutionize your planning and my planning. It will revolutionize the way that we look forward to the future. And what we see is, Paul has a vision of what's going to take place. I will return to you. It isn't that he's just sitting there floating around like a feather, allowing the winds to toss him to and fro. He says, I've got an agenda. My agenda and plan is to return to you in Ephesus and spend time with you. If God wills. And those little dots after whatever your vision is for tomorrow needs to be dot, 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 if God wills. So some of our young people are saying, I'm going to go to school and finish my high school career. I'm going to go to college, get a four-year degree. I'm going to meet the love of my life during college. I'm going to find a job. We're going to have three kids and a dog, and we're going to live happily ever after. And some people have lived life thinking that and working towards that, and what they forget is dot, 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 if God wills wills. As a business person, I've got plans. As a pastor, I've got plans for my business and for my church, but I need to recognize, and the elders of this church need to recognize, and you and I all need to recognize, we've got plans. This is not saying long-term planning is bad, but every long-term plan should have dot, 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 if God wills. And it recognizes that I am fragile, I am but a vapor, I'm here today and gone tomorrow. I'm frail. And so I'm going to say, God, you're going to have to show up for my plans to become a reality. Paul says, I want to come back to you if God wills. Acknowledge God in your plans. Finally, in your pursuits. Notice in the text, verse 22 and 23, we are told that he's made his trip to Jerusalem. Then he heads back to his home base at the end of verse 22 to Antioch. That's where he started. 
And it says, after spending some time there, he departs. Now, right away, we say, okay, Paul's again on his journey. But let's just stop and recognize from a human standpoint, from a human standpoint, it would be really, really tempting for Paul, when he gets to Antioch, to say, I'm done. I've been beaten, I've been abused, but I've been faithful to the gospel. And now I'm home, home sweet home, I retire. And everybody would have been okay with that. Paul, you've done so much. How can you get mad at Paul spending year upon year, 18 months in just one stop in his journey? So he was no, no doubt gone for many years, and he had scars to prove the absolute horrors of the journey. But he doesn't. Notice what it says. He spent some time there, and then he departs, and he went from place to place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now let me just stop there for a moment and say, do you think Paul had personal goals and desires? You think Paul wanted to spend some time for himself and, and do things that he wanted to do? Absolutely, he's a human being. But what he does is what we need to do, and that's acknowledge God's grace when we have desires and pursuits to recognize God has them as well. One of the most important things that you can remember as a follower of Jesus Christ is that humanly speaking, every part of your humanity says you want to do it your way and you're heading this way. And God's word says, but it's my way. And here's the thing you need to remember and that I need to remember. God's railroad track of his will doesn't move, right? It's going. He's established it. Nothing can thwart it. Nothing can knock it down. Nothing. And so what is our job? Our job is not, and we do this, we try to move God into our plans and pursuits. What we need to do is we need to move our plans and pursuits in right standing with God and his plans and pursuits. And that's what Paul does. Paul says, listen, I'm going to do the work of God, and I'm going to seek his kingdom first, and I'm going to let God who knows my desires, who knows my wants, who, who knows my dreams, I'm going to let God address those in his right way, in his right time. Brothers and sisters, acknowledge God in everything that you do. Paul would say later on, whether we eat or drink, do all things to the glory of God who is in heaven. Never forget that we live our lives before God. Before God, it's the Latin term, corem Deo, before the face of God. Because when you do, it will revolutionize the way you live, the way you act, the way you make decisions, because you will recognize you need God, as the hymn writer says, each and every hour. Number two, we've got to admit that growth is necessary. We've got to admit growth is necessary. Notice verse 24 through 28. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, The brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Now we got this new guy. 
And this new guy is going to teach us something about learning. His name's Apollos. And Apollos uh, is a young man who has all the great things going for him. This guy, he was quite the catch. I mean, this was the guy that your dad wants you to bring home, ladies, uh, to uh, welcome as the new boyfriend, all right? Apollos is a pretty awesome dude. Well, what do we know about Apollos? We know that Apollos has some things going for him. I'm going to give them all in letters E, okay? So write these down. Number one, he's an Egyptian. He's an Egyptian. And uh, we know that because he is native to Alexandria. Alexandria is in the nation of Egypt, okay? And to have lived in Alexandria was that you lived in a place of great prominence. The city of Alexandria is the second largest city in all of the Roman Empire. It was named after uh, the great conqueror of lands, Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great, making sure that his posterity would know of his greatness, made the city that carried his name to be the best and brightest and, and most desirous city to live in. In the U.S. news and world reports, uh, reports of the ancient world, Alexandria would have been the number one place to raise a family. Okay, And this is where this guy's from. And so when he would say, uh, I'm from Alexandria, the look in the people's eyes would be like, I wish I grew up where you grew up. I know that feeling because when I tell you I live in Hinkley, I see your despair of not living in that great metropolis to our west, what we call God's country. All right? He was an an Egyptian from Alexandria. Number two, he was educated. You need to recognize Alexandria was the Oxford of the world. It was the place where higher learning and higher thought was. The Athenians wanted to be Alexandrians. To be from Alexandria was to be around the best schools, the best teachers, the best libraries. In fact, the Library of Alexandria carried more than 700,000 ancient books. It was the place to be. In fact, there were there more than one million Jews who spoke Greek there. And one of the reasons uh, for that uh, was because it was, again, a desirous place to live. This place of higher learning uh, had an effect. In fact, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, was written and translated by teachers in Alexandria. You say, well, I don't know the Septuagint. You know the Septuagint because 90% of what Jesus quotes comes from the Septuagint when he speaks on earth here in his earthly ministry. And so the Bible that Jesus read, Apollos would say, that Bible came from my hometown. We, we translated it. We wrote it uh, for the people of the world. We're told that he was educated, that he was competent in the scriptures. He knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards and forwards and back. And then we are told he was eloquent. The word Luke uses is logia. It comes from the word logos, word. Um, it means two things. Number one, he was eloquent. He was not like your preacher who stumbles on words, who butchers the English language. This guy's vocabulary was second to none. He was able to speak with great eloquence. People loved listening to him. But his eloquence, his logia, also had to do with what he was teaching. He could take incredibly difficult truths and make them easy to understand. He was the quintessential preacher. Finally, he was enthusiastic. It says he was fervent in spirit. That is, his teaching drew a crowd. That means he was charismatic. That means people were drawn to listen to him. This is the guy. Now, what's the problem? 
And why would Aquila and Priscilla have to pull him aside as he taught? Everything he said is really, really good. Well, we're told he only knew of John's baptism. And yet, he taught accurately about Christ. Well, what does that mean? In the most simple of terms, and I could go on and on, but my time is short, so I'll just tell you this. What Apollos taught, and he taught it really, really well, was the Old Testament and the Gospels. So think about that. You're teaching the Old Testament Gospels, and he's nailing it. But what he hasn't been a part of is Village Bible Church's series on Acts. He doesn't know about Pentecost. He doesn't know about the filling of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't know what the church is. He doesn't know that salvation is by grace through faith alone. He doesn't know that Gentiles are now welcomed into the family of God. He doesn't know any of that. Warren Wearsby, a commentator, said it wasn't that he was insincere. It wasn't that he was inaccurate. It was that he was incomplete. And who can blame him? In the ancient world, he didn't have the internet, he didn't have TV, he didn't have radio. He had no idea what was going on. And so these disciples under Paul hear his message, and they pull him aside, and they teach him. Now there's a truth for us to understand here. This incredibly gifted man is willing to be teachable. This pastor, if you will, preacher, is willing to listen to his congregation. A couple things that we need to recognize in this. Number one, admitting that you've got areas to grow doesn't mean that you're not gifted. He was gifted. In fact, one commentator said that Apollos is spoken about in more flowery terms than almost everybody else but Jesus himself. That's pretty impressive. We know that when he is pastoring in the church of Corinth, in 1 Corinthians, that Apollos is so gifted that there are some who say, we follow Peter... And others say we follow Paul, which is reasonable, right? Because they were apostles of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But there was a whole other group that said, but we follow Apollos. We're going to follow him instead of Paul, instead of Peter. Now, Paul says that these divisions are all nonsense, but that should show you how absolutely gifted this guy was. And yet, this incredibly gifted man shows us something. That no matter how gifted you are, we can all learn. Boy, does a 42-year-old preacher need to hear that. And I don't know about you, but there's a lot of times where I start reading my own press and I don't think I need to learn anything, especially from people that I may think are less than me. But here's what I'm coming to learn. I learn from my children. I learn from my wife. I learn from uh, the staff here at the church. I learn from people in my small group. I learn from people all over this church. Because no matter how gifted you are, and I'm not saying I'm that gifted, not in comparison to Apollos, I'm nothing compared to that guy. But no matter how gifted you may think you are, you are not exempt from the need to grow. And can I just say, that's true in your own Christian walk, but it will serve you well in the outside world as well. Oh, the world needs teachable people. Teachable people who recognize, know they are gifted, that others have something to share with them. Number two, we need to recognize that it doesn't need to cause us to grumble. Notice uh, Aquila and Priscilla pull him aside. The text literally means he's teaching and proclaiming. And as he comes down from the platform, they say, hey, Apollos, can we talk with you later? The phrase there literally is to draw him close to them. It gives the picture of a baby uh, being loved and nurtured by its mother. And so 
they bring Apollos and they say, can we talk with you? It's done in private. And they begin to teach him the things that he wasn't aware of. And he doesn't grumble. He doesn't say, who do they think they are? Don't they know who I am? Don't they know the amount of Twitter followers I've got? They don't say any of that. He listens. Oh, how we need to be willing to listen. Listen to God's grace being proclaimed through all kinds of people. He's willing to listen because he recognizes he's got areas to grow. And what does it allow him to do? It's an opportunity for him to glean from others. Listen, one of the things I share in my theology class on Sunday nights is that it is important for us to do theology in community because each of us understand and know God a little bit differently from each other. We've experienced God in different ways. We have our own struggles and our own issues. And so in my class, I invite young people and old people. In my class, I invite men and women. In my class, I want new believers and old believers. I want all kinds of people because we need one another to show a different part of God that we're not seeing. And we need to glean those truths about what God has revealed about himself from other people. I'm a better Christian because of you. Because of what you're teaching me about your own relationship with Christ. Things I've never thought of or never have experienced. When I talk with you and when I fellowship with you, you grow me in my relationship with Christ because you teach me about God in a way that I never, may never, ever encounter. And hopefully I'm doing the same. Apollos teaches us that as lifelong learners, we get the great opportunity to learn from one another. To be able to do that, it involves one final thing, and this is a very short point, and that is that we need to accept God's game plan. If we're going to learn, then that means that two things need to happen. There need to be learners, and there need to be teachers. And at times, we're doing both. Right now, I'm in the teaching mode. But am I always the teacher? No. There are times, especially when I'm sitting with my mom and dad, they're going to teach me. People who have lived longer than me, I need to submit and, and learn from them. And each of us are either learning or teaching. And some of us are somewhere in between. Recognize as lifelong learners a couple truths about this. Number one, it involves everyone. You're either learning or teaching. So where are you at right now? Are you a learner? Then be the best learner you can be. Be teachable. Be open. Are you, are you Apollos, the learner? Then follow Apollos' uh, guidelines and game plan. Maybe you're a teacher this morning. You're Aquila and Priscilla. Follow their guidelines. Be loving and kind. Don't be harsh. Recognize once you were a learner yourself. Recognize that it didn't come all that quickly. We, as we get older, think these things came way quicker to us than they actually did. That we forget our stumblings and our struggles and learning what it is to be a follower of God. It's for everyone. Each of us have a part that we play. Number two, it means we've got to engage. You cannot be a student without a teacher. Do you know that? When you're by yourself, you're not a student. You have to have someone teaching you something. And can I remind you of this truth? You can't be a teacher without a student. And so we need one another. 
And what makes us better, whether we're a learner or a teacher, is that we have someone else to either be poured into or to pour into someone else. And so teacher, if you find yourself where you've been walking with the Lord for a long time and you've got a good grasp, doesn't mean you've stopped learning, but for the most part you've got a good grasp of what God's will and plan is for your life, then my question is, who's your student? Who's your student? Who's your Apollos? And maybe you're new to the faith, and maybe you're younger, and you're asking, you know, I've got lots of questions, and I don't know what to do, and maybe you haven't even articulated that. You're, you're afraid that in articulating that will say that you're something less than that. Well, I'm going to tell you something. You need to find a teacher, someone who's trustworthy, that you can put yourself under their authority and say, teach me, I am willing to listen. We need one another. I cannot teach the Word of God without you sitting here. And you cannot be taught the Word of God without someone teaching it to you. And so we need to recognize we need one another in this process of learning. And that's exactly why God built the church, a place where we could engage one another in this learning process. Never forget the word disciple simply is a learner. A learner. Finally, it involves encouragement. Notice it says at the end of our passage that when they sent Apollos off after they had trained him and made him more accurate in his teaching, and he headed off to preach to other people, they encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him so that when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. We need to encourage one another. And I run the risk at times of being too negative. And I think a lot of people do. We point out the negatives instead of the positives. And we need to recognize today that our spirit and our working with one another must always be in a spirit of encouragement, hoping the best, believing the best, and moving people to be best positioned for God to do great things through them. Are you Apollos? Are you Aquila or Priscilla? Each of us play a role in that. And this week is the is a great opportunity for you to accept God's game plan and stop and start living it out, not only for your good, but the good of all those around.